shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works. No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then not nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Craig Foster. Uh, I'm the new ministers here and just want to thank you uh, for the warm welcome that we've received uh, as we've joined the church family here. Uh, before we look at this passage today, let's, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you give us your word, that it is powerful and life-changing. And we do pray that each one of us here this morning, as we hear, hear it, that we would be challenged where we need to be challenged and that we'd be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. I don't know if you know, but one of the privileges of US presidents is that they get to offer presidential pardons. It'll be interesting to see the presidential pardons that uh, Donald Trump offers in his time. Uh, and there has been great variety in the types of pardons that are offered. Uh, there's some presidents who have offered no pardons at all in their time. Uh, Lyndon Johnson has the record, some 3,600. Barack Obama had about 64 pardons. But there's also some, been some really controversial pardons. 
and up there near the top of the list was Bill Clinton uh, when he was president. And he offered in the last hours of his presidency 140 pardons. And on the list of pardons was the name Roger Clinton, uh, who happened to be his brother, his half-brother. And uh, Roger was convicted a number of years before of drug charges uh, involving cocaine. Uh, and he was offered this pardon where his criminal record was erased, forgiven for all. Uh, and unfortunately it wasn't very effective. As very soon after this pardon, he was charged again with drunk driving uh, and disorderly conduct. Now our natural response to these type of pardons is that's foolish. They deserve justice. That won't change things. They'll just repeat it. But what about when we get presidential type pardons in our own life? In my own life, I have received many presidential type pardons, uh, particularly from my wife. Um, now, I've been married for 20 years last year and uh, received many pardons. Uh, one a recent one was our family just went on our, a big trip to Zimbabwe, the first time the children had been on a plane and overseas. It was all very exciting. We get to the airport with all our luggage. We get to the, the counter and Dad has forgotten the crucial document birth certificate for Africa. So they say, sorry, you cannot catch the plane today. You'll have to come back tomorrow. So we get our luggage and off we go home. Now, fortunately, my wife is very gracious and my family, and they offered me a presidential type of pardon. Uh, and they've had to over the years many times, like the time when I accidentally left my two-year-old son somewhere and I got home and drove into the driveway and my wife's there looking panicked. What's the problem? Where's, where's Edward? Oh, he's not there. Uh, so anyway, I drove back to where he was and fortunately it was all okay and I found him. Well, there has been... See, it's just a kind of daily type of thing. Um, but um, the reality is that sometimes my wife has had to offer very significant pardons. And these pardons are very relationship building. To receive mercy is amazing. And in this passage that we're looking at today, we're looking at really the first three chapters of Romans, but we're focusing particularly on 321. Um, and in this, in this passage, we, we, we rely, don't we? there's this tension that we want justice, but we also love to receive mercy. So in our passage today, we, we see that God offers a more scandalous pardon than President Clinton's pardon or any wife's pardon of her husband. We, not only is there one or 140 or 3,000 pardons, but God offers all of humanity the opportunity to be pardoned for unrighteousness and to be declared righteous. It is the ultimate 180 degree manoeuvre from unrighteousness to righteousness. Well, before we get to God's scandalous pardon that we, that we read in chapter 321. We need to set the scene a little bit because uh, there is a lot that's come before as we get to chapter 3. Because Paul, in a sense, has set a courtroom scene. It's as though God has, that is though humanity is in the dock. Can you imagine a courtroom? Humanity as a whole is in the dock. God is the judge and Paul is like a prosecutor here. Okay? As he's laying charge and charge against humanity. It's high drama that might be lost on, on us as we read the passage today. And it reminds me of a uh, classic movie, A Few Good Men. Uh, and in this movie, we have 
a young, inexperienced lieutenant in the US Navy. It's, it's based on a true story, I understand. Lieutenant Daniel Caffey. And he takes on the colonel, Colonel Jessup, who is the commander of uh, the Navy in Guantanamo Bay in, in a unit there. And Lieutenant Caffey is made to look so ridiculous by the colonel. And, but he keeps laying charge after charge at the, general, at, uh, the, at the colonel. And it all looks lost. But then all of a sudden, as, as the charges keep coming, the colonel loses his call. And he admits guilt. He admits guilt to ordering a code red that led to the death of uh, a US Marine. It is an unequal match there with the lieutenant and the colonel. And it is an unequal match as Paul prosecutes all of humanity. He has all of humanity in the dock. And Paul brings this charge against humanity. And we see back in chapter 1, in verses 18 to 20, Paul brings this charge against humanity to see this charge that he, he puts to humanity. Now, we don't have time to go into all of chapter 1 and 2, but we want to see the logic of his case before we get to chapter 3. His charge is that humanity are unrighteous, that they are godless and wicked. Let me read verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1. It says, The wrath of God, the anger of God, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness, the unrighteousness it means, of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So the reason that humanity is being charged is firstly that they suppress the truth. Okay, it talks about all of humanity should see in creation, in our world, God's truth, God's shouting, his divine quality and his attributes, his power in our beautiful, amazing world that he has created. But humanity, it's like they, they throw a cover, a black cover over our universe and they ignore the truth that it speaks. And it says here that we suppress the truth. And then down in verse 21, it says, although, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. We don't glorify God. We don't give him the reputation that he deserves for being God. And not only that, we don't give thanks to him for all the great things that we enjoy. We, we push God away and we reject him. And as a result of that, there is this spiral that begins, this spiral of unrighteousness. And follow it in verses 21 to 32. Firstly, in verse 21, their thinking becomes futile. As we reject God and don't glorify him, the thinking becomes futile. Our hearts become darkened. We worship ourselves and nature, each other and uh, nature. And God gives us over as a result of that. In verse 24, to sinful desires. There is sexual immorality. And then in verse 26, he gives us over to shameful lusts. He lets us go our own way. If you want to reject me, he lets us go and he gives us over. And then in verse 28, he gave them over to depraved minds. So there's this great spiral of unrighteousness. And then in verses 29 to 31 of chapter 1, we get this vice list, it's called, which is the longest one we're given uh, in, in the New Testament. Let me read the vices here, this long catalogue of sins. Verse 29 31 of chapter 1. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, 
evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Uh, and is that not our world? We just need to turn the TV on each night to the news to see and to watch some reality TV shows. Uh, the last one I heard advertised marriage at first sight. Um, what next? What can we invent next as we go through this spiral? Well, as we suppress the truth and we don't glorify God and give him thanks, it will continue to spiral. It should not surprise us. Well, Paul is the good lawyer. He predicts uh, the response of humanity, the accused, and he predicts that we're going to say, that's not me. Yes, our world is becoming increasingly unrighteous, godless and evil, but I'm, I'm not too bad. I'm a pretty good person, particularly compared to the people on the news and the TV. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it's as though Paul corners us in here. And he says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And that catalogue of sin that was read out. Let's imagine that we were to go into this giant room full of compactors and files, okay, the size of this auditorium, and they're all neatly catalogued, A, B, all the way up to Z. And we're kind of interested, these yellow manila folders everywhere. And then we go up to G and we pull a folder out, a manila folder out, it's a couple of inches thick, and we're thinking, what is this? And the janitor of the filing room comes in and we ask him, what, what, is, what is this room? And he says, it is a catalogue of all your sins. And you've got the, the folder G, gossip, two inches thick, and you start reading through it, and you think, this is true, this is me. And this whole room is a catalogue of your sins. So what is the verdict? Well, we see in chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, where Paul really does hit us quite hard. Have a look at chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. He says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So the verdict is guilty, guilty, guilty. And if this was the dock for humanity, we are all sitting in this chair. We're all charged with unrighteousness in, in this um, case that Paul has brought before us. Now, it, it's unfashionable to talk like this, isn't it? Um, having worked in schools for the last eight years, there was great pressure to avoid talking about sin and unrighteousness. I felt that pressure enormously as a school chaplain. We want positivity. It was the self-esteem movement and then it was positive psychology and also now positive theology. 
it's not fashionable to talk about sin and unrighteousness. And I love the line in this movie, A Few Good Men, because Lieutenant, at a crucial part of the movie, Lieutenant Cappy says to Colonel Jessup, I want the truth. You might know this line. I think it's one of the most famous lines in, in, uh, in movies. And Colonel Jessup responds, You can't handle the truth. Um, and the reality is we can't handle the truth. Our comedian Ben Elton, uh, English comedian, had this, had this to say. He said, The good in humanity outweighs the evil despite evidence to the contrary. Uh, and I think that's, that would be echoed by many. But I love the brave honesty of uh, 20th century well-known writer and philosopher, G.K. Chesterton, might have uh, heard this famous example where the, new, uh, the, the Times newspaper asked famous authors, what's the problem with our world? Uh, and G.K. Chesterton wrote back and it said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Just beautiful, simple honesty. But we must talk about sin. And we must talk about it often. I know it's unfashionable, but we will never appreciate the solution until we see the seriousness of the problem. It's like the cancer patient will never see how serious their problem is until they realise the seriousness of it and then they will seek the solution. So we must talk about sin. We must think about it to really appreciate the, the solution. Well, we have seen the charge. Unrighteous. We're all there. We've seen the verdict. Guilty before God. Now we get to the decisive moment. And chapter 1, verse 3 has been moving. The scandalous pardon. And chapter 3, verse 21 reminds us of another movie um, for me. Uh, a classic movie uh, well, was based on a book, Victor, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, and, um, which was turned into a movie and a musical. And in this movie, musical book, uh, a key turning point was when the convict, Jean, uh, Jean Valjean, uh, he was a convict and he'd been in prison for 19 years uh, for stealing bread. Uh, but he kept trying to escape, so he ended up spending a long time in there. And eventually he was released and he was given a yellow card which said ex-convict that he had to carry around with him. And then he went uh, looking for accommodation and the bishop uh, in an area in southern France accepted him in. Uh, and, he, and he stayed the night there and during the night he woke up and he went downstairs in the bishop's house and he started to steal all the silverware and the silver from this kind-hearted bishop. And the bishop wakes up and comes down and to find Jean Valjean doing this. And in one of the movies we see Jean Valjean hitting him over the head and knocking him out with some of the silver that he's stolen and he escapes. Well, the next day... He is caught by the French police and he is dragged back to, to the Bishop Muriel. And what is the bishop going to do? The bishop sees Jean Valjean there being hauled before him with the police and he says, Jean Valjean, why did you not take the silver candlesticks? I gave those to you as well. And, and Jean Valjean's face is, is completely amused and surprised and the police used as well and he is free. He gets to take all the silver that he's stolen plus the silver 
candlesticks. And the bishop says to him, use this silver to become an honest man. And this pardon, this scandalous pardon, is the turning point in Jean Valjean's life. And at this point in Paul's argument, as we get to to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it's like the courtroom proceedings have been interrupted dramatically. It's like the judge stands up and he says, yes, you are guilty, but I've just received a note from the president. You are pardoned. You are free to go. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are left speechless. Chapter 3, verse 21, which we'll read in just a moment. Leon Morris says of this, a, a biblical scholar, he says that it's the most important verse in the whole Bible. It's a big poem. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous English preacher, said there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two. But now. And Martin Luther says this paragraph uh, of Scripture is the chief point of the whole Bible justification by faith. So if you've fallen asleep in this talk so far, this is the time to wake up because we're looking at the most important verse according to some in the Bible, chapter 3 verse 21 and we could spend months on this verse and and even longer on this whole paragraph. But I want to highlight a few key words from it but let's, let's read it first. Chapter 3 verse 21 But now this great charge has just been coming then there's this great turning point, this 180 degrees. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And some of the key words here, but now, but it's like a lightning bolt has, has come into to, to the argument in, in Romans. Now, uh, no more, uh, it's what history has been waiting for. It's not a future event, it's now, today a righteousness, a way to be made right with God, to be declared innocent, declared guilty, but to be declared innocent. And it's of God. It's a gift. It's grace. It's not something that we can earn by ourselves. And I want to particularly focus into two of those words, um, now and righteousness. And the reason is because I think this doctrine of righteousness is under threat today uh, as the scholars uh, argue about it and it impacts us uh, down the line and subtly but dangerously, dangerously as there is a movement that this righteousness that it is more a process that you are slowly being made right with God and when you die and you face judgment you don't know whether you're going to receive salvation or not but this verse says no now it's a status so it's not a process but it is a status It's a status that is confirmed in the present day for the final verdict. So if we trust here in Jesus today, this day, then God sees us as righteous, perfect. Our sins are blotted out completely, erased. We are pardoned. We are totally forgiven. That is amazing, isn't it? That if we have trust in Jesus we are justified, just as if I had never sinned. We need to dwell on this because we forget this status that God gives us through Jesus. Yes, we still sin and we're still being sanctified and we still struggle with sin, but our status, our position before God is that we are righteous. Well, 
let's move move on to um, the response required. We've seen the charge. We're unrighteous. We've seen the verdict guilty. We've heard about the scandalous pardon from being made unrighteous to righteous. So what is humanity expected to do? What is the response to this scandalous pardon? Well, in verses 21 to 31, Paul explains the response required by us to claim the pardon. Let me read verse 21 and 22 and see if you can see the response that is required. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So how are we... What is the response required to receive this gift of righteousness? It is, anyone? Faith, I heard it over there. It's faith. As we have faith, then we move from becoming unrighteous to righteous. We're declared righteous. And it is faith is, is, is such a, a simple word, isn't it? If I, my old pastor minister used to say, how do I demonstrate that I have faith in this chair? Well, I actually sit in the chair. That's my faith. It's going to hold me up. I I exhibit faith in it. How do I have faith in Jesus Christ? I don't sit on Jesus, but symbolically I do. I trust him and what has been said about him. Because what we trust in him, and it is explained in great detail in verses um, 25 and 26, we don't have time to look at because it's, there's just so much depth there. But basically, he has Jesus has become unrighteous for us. He has become unrighteous and taken the penalty and died on the cross for us. And we, we trust in that, in his death and his resurrection, so that we, he paid the price for us so that we could become righteous. It is an incredible uh, gift to us, an incredible gift of faith. And there is no other way to be declared righteous than by faith. We want to do something, don't we? We, we want to add something, but we see there that it is a simple response of faith. So the response to God's pardon is faith, but there is also a final concluding attitude of the heart that is expected when someone has faith in Jesus. And it's, it's an unexpected application. It was particularly directed at Jews when Paul wrote this, but I think it has real relevance to Christians, particularly in the West today. Let me read verses 27 to 28 of chapter 3. It says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, from the works of the law. So boasting is excluded on the basis of faith. With faith, there's nothing to boast about. Um, we've not earned it. We've not achieved it. We've not won it. Faith is no more work than breathing. Um, faith itself is even a gift. So how does this attitude of boasting then if, if this, this faith is such a gift to us, how, is, how does this attitude of boasting apply to us today? Because even though it was directed at Jews, um, and it, it, it's, it's true of us here, 
uh, in, a, in a way, but perhaps not clearly to us. Because I'm not sure if we boast out loud in our righteousness. It's a very un-Australian thing, isn't it, to kind of boast in your righteousness. It's, it's more Australian to boast in our unrighteousness. Um, but I think it's very easy, particularly for Christians, to be undercover boasters. Okay, not externally verbalise it, but in our hearts to kind of boast, or to be like smug about our situation in life, that, that things are going all right for us and, and we watch the news and we watch the, the TV programs and it's very easy for us to look down on the unrighteousness that is in our world and somehow think that we are better. Um, but we need to keep remembering that we were all unrighteous before we became righteous. And as, as time goes on, we can become very comfortable and we can be in a Christian bubble and forget where we were. And as a result of that, our love for the unrighteous, those who don't know Jesus, can increase. I don't know if you're like me, but when I first became a Christian, as a 22-year-old, I had a great passion to tell others about Jesus, to tell others about the righteousness that is offered to them. But as time goes on, it's very easy to kind of lose that passion as we get caught up in our Christian bubbles. Well, the godly response to such a scandalous pardon is not undercover boasting to somehow think that we're better than others or we're more righteous, but it is humility to think, me? Why me? Why, why have you pardoned me? I don't deserve such a pardon. I don't deserve to be seen as righteous forever. I must go and tell others about this incredible pardon that I've received. And as Peter said at the beginning of the service, one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. We need to have that attitude always as we go on as Christians and not lose that passion, that love for the unrighteous because we were all there. I want to finish today by reflecting on some words from a hymn which I think encourage us to have that attitude that Paul talks about in verse 27 28. To not be boasting, to not be undercover boasters. Let me read these words out to us. Nothing can I boast in. My life is scarred with sin. My works are filthy rags. No merit can I bring. Yet mercy filled Christ's heart. Love took him to the tree. It's grace alone which saves me. Christ's blood that sets me free.